You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. This is episode number 23 of the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. In this episode, we hear from Chris Cipollone, a minister in the Anglican Church, teacher by trade, and dad of four kids under five. Chris shares incredibly candidly and profoundly about his journey of mental illness and what that experience has been like for him, as well as what mental illness can look like through the lens of a Christian worldview. Chris is in the process of writing a book on this subject, as well as writing a blog, speaking publicly and offering counselling. You can find out more about Chris, his book, ministries and perspectives on his website, chriscipolloni.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-I-P-O-L-L-O-N-E.com. And you'll also find links to his Twitter, Facebook and Instagram there as well. Mental illness is such an important topic in our society. So if you think this interview can help anyone you know, whether they're a sufferer of mental illness or not, then I'd really encourage you to share it. Just a trigger warning for listeners as well that this episode does contain some in-depth discussions about depression and anxiety, as well as some suicide themes. So if this brings up any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And now I hope you really get a lot out of this great conversation with Chris Cipollone. I'm a Sydney boy, born and bred. First home was in Wurunga, not far from here. I went to Tasmania for a couple of years for my dad's work. Uh, They wanted to stay, but my brother and I wanted to come home, so we came back. How old were you? I was six and seven, so we were there just for a little while, but it was enough for me to see that I didn't want to live there permanently. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it being really cold. Mm. Uh, I don't remember much other than that that I didn't like, so maybe it was just the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Mum and Dad listened and we came back and lived in the area, moved around a few times, but mostly in this part of Sydney for for my life, aside from um, six months that I spent with my wife in the US. Nice. Yeah. And what are some of your early memories growing up? Uh, my mum will kill me, but my earliest memory is sitting on a brown lounge. I was probably about three, eating peanut butter and honey sandwiches and watching Days of Our Lives every day <laughs> while my brother was at school. So Every day. <laughs> every day, Days of Our Lives. I still remember it. Wow. Um, I guess we think about traumatic memories. I remember getting my foot stuck in an exercise bike mm. and slicing the whole side of my foot and just there being blood everywhere. Wow. So that's, I guess, the unfortunate part about some of the human psyche is we remember the bad stuff too. So, yeah, I remember the days of our lives and the, the exercise bike, which are two very weird and unrelated memories. <laughs> <laughs> and were you a happy child overall? Yeah, I think I was. Uh, mum and dad say that I was a very easy child. So my mum has said that some of her friends didn't believe that I actually existed because every time they came over, I was sleeping. Um, yeah. Looking back at some childhood videos, I seemed really happy, pretty straightforward kind of childhood, not a lot of drama. So yeah, the world was a pretty magical place for me as a child. And I'd say on the whole, I was very happy. Was spirituality or God or religion part of your world? Do you have an early memory of that? Yeah, mum and dad raised my brother and I in the church. 
So we were going to church since the day we were born. We've had heaps of different church experiences, different denominations. My earliest memory of church is, I think we were at the Uniting Church at Taramara. And I remember a lot of like wooden furniture. So I guess pews and I don't know, church halls. And it just had that smell that (laughs) old churches kind of have. So I remember that Um, in terms of, and I was probably four or five at that point, in terms of a, a faith, I don't remember anything other than just church routine at that point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I always remember being in church, but not necessarily spirituality at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And what was school like for you? School was good. So, again, being a pretty happy kid, I got along really well. Um, one of the, I guess, things that got complicated was, <laughs> sounds embarrassing, but I was a fat kid. So, that later down the track, probably late primary school, early high school started to make school not a fun experience because kids just give you grief for that. Yeah. Um, but up until then, yeah, always had friends, was pretty good at school, particularly in primary school. So I started my career as a primary teacher. And I think a lot of that was because primary school was, I look back in a really special time where I thrived and I was good at schoolwork and I had friends and it was just a, it was just a good time of my life. Yeah. In high school, it got harder, changed schools. Nobody from my primary school went to the same high school as me. So, and again, just because of my weight, got bullied pretty badly for the first half of high school. And then I guess kind of came into my own after that, lost some weight, but also I think people or my peers matured a bit and saw that there was more to me than my weight. And yeah, I, I could have interesting conversations with them. So yeah, a bit of a mixed bag with school started off well and high school uh, was hard at times. Mm. And did you know what you wanted to do with your life at that stage? I'm like the opposite, I think, of normal kids in that I think normal kids have these dreams of being like firefighters and they end up being accountants or whatever. (laughs) I actually dreamed of being an accountant when I was a kid. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, it's so weird. So I think my dad kind of drilled it into me. He's not an accountant himself. He's a teacher. But I remember counting church offertory and loving counting the coins again one of my early memories and he always used to say to me oh you'd love to be an accountant so I didn't know what it was but I thought hey if this is what accountancy is counting people's money then maybe that's for me so but in saying that mum and dad never really put pressure on to kind of win at life and do be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it was never that kind of extreme pressure so probably the consequence of that was by the time I hit year 12 I hadn't put heaps of thought into what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I figured out pretty early that I wanted to do work with people. So that's why I ended up going into teaching. Um, But I guess it was one of those classic situations where I sort of fell into it because I didn't know what else to do. And that was actually, and I guess we'll come to this later, but a source of great anxiety for me was not knowing my place in the world. And particularly in terms of career, I think... I've found a lot of my identity in what I do. And as a Christian, that can cause complications. And so not having grand plans for what I wanted to do was easy in a sense growing up. But come adulthood, when I had to make a decision, it kind of caught up with me. Right. And so you graduated high school, Mm -hmm. fell into teaching. Mm -hmm. And so is that where anxiety and depression sort of began for you? I think it was around that time when I was at university, but I don't think initially that was what started it. I think 
complications with friends was a real catalyst for me. Um, I'm a pretty sensitive guy and I like to talk stuff out. And I was part of a group of friends that didn't necessarily relate on that level. So I, I always felt a bit different in that way. And I craved something deeper from my friendships that those guys at the time didn't really want to engage with. Um, but again, in hindsight, one of the things I've learned about my own depression is that one of my early warning signs psychologists talk about, how do you know you're going downhill, is that I can become very critical of other people. So I don't know if I was depressed before stuff started to go downhill with my friends or whether stuff that happened with my friends is what brought it on. Yeah. So it was around the time that I was studying and career caused some grief for me later. But at the beginning of that, about the age of 20, it wasn't career that kind of was the catalyst. It was more friendships. Yeah. And what was that like sort of entering into that space and, and identifying it, I guess? I didn't know what it was at the time. It was only probably about five years later that a psychologist first diagnosed me as having depression. So I guess for those five years, it was confusing. Mm. I think being a happy child actually meant that my young adult years were really difficult because suddenly the world wasn't the magical place that I thought it was. The world was filled with brokenness and disappointment that I hadn't experienced before. I don't think my parents consciously sheltered me, but I guess I just found out a lot in those years from like 18 to 23 that these things that I had visualized as being incredible were kind of broken. And that caused a lot of disillusionment in my life. So I've said to people before that I can't speak for others, but for me, my depression, I don't think came out of being overly pessimistic about life. It was actually because I was overly optimistic mm. and because I'd wanted such grand things for my life when there was a mismatch that caused disillusionment and doing a bit of work now, pastoral work with young people and talking to some psychologists, my story sounds increasingly common. And I've asked psychologists, why is it increasing? Why is the incidence of depression getting higher? And a few people have told me we grow up with higher expectations of life than we ever have before. And so the level of disappointment or discrepancy between what we expect and what we find has never been greater. And so like me, that causes disillusionment. And so that was really hard and something that, to be honest, I'm still grappling with to a certain degree about, particularly as a Christian, if we have a loving God, how does that equate with enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of life and what can kind we what can we kind of expect to get out of this life and what's realistic mm, yeah big question <laughs> totally so was god part of your world at this stage did you encounter jesus at a particular point for yourself when i was 13 i asked my parents if i could get baptized mm -hmm. so there was a pastor at the church i was at who had had pancreatic cancer and i don't know how much you know about that but from what I understand, it's basically a death sentence. Like it's the worst kind of cancer that you can get. And he had miraculously come through that. He'd come to work at the church, really inspirational guy, but um, relapsed into pancreatic cancer and told everyone that he was going to leave and retire and however many years he had left. And I remember there was a wave. There weren't many young people at the church, but I remember we all really looked up to this guy. And there was this wave of young people about my age that wanted to get baptized by him. And I was one of those. So I still have the certificate, 7th of August, 1997. 
uh, just before my 13th birthday, I got baptized. And what I'd been told was that would be like me publicly declaring that I was a Christian and that it wasn't my parents' faith anymore, but it was something that I was deciding. And so I knew that, but what I wasn't expecting was I was baptized by immersion. So as I was immersed and as I came out, I just remember floating, obviously not physically, but just this sensation of lightness in my body. And now I'm a minister and and seeing other people come to Christ, that's an experience that seems quite common, that there's this feeling of lightness and liberation and all the weight that is on your shoulders is lifted from you. So I look back and think it was more than a expression of my faith at that point. There was actually, I think, a deep spiritual reality that entered me at that point. So I'd say, yeah, just before my 13th birthday. So into my young adult years, I would definitely have called myself a Christian. And and I think I was. And did that frame at all the way you were experiencing the anxiety and all that sort of thing? And the disappointment, I guess, in life? Yeah, not at that point. Um, I think even though I'd been a Christian for a while and I started leading Bible studies and stuff pretty young. So I know that people in the church saw me as having, I guess, leadership potential and saw that I had a strong faith. Um, But I definitely don't think I was equipped to know how my faith informed what I was going through with depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. There was a total disconnect there. So I was a Christian, but I was also, as I said, I didn't know it at the time, but I was depressed. And one truth had no influence on the other truth. They were completely separate parts of my life. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And at what point did you get diagnosed? Yeah, I was probably about 25 or 26. So got married at 23. Mm -hmm. Something I'd always wanted to do was go on a gap year and I never did. And Lara, my wife, hadn't had a gap year either and something she'd wanted to do. So we worked from about 23 to 25. And then we headed overseas for a year when we were 25 together. And that was, I guess, the culmination of that idea of always looking forward to something and hoping that something would deeply satisfy me. But in that deep longing and that deep optimism for something, again, that jadedness came in. So we spent the first six months in the States and most of that in North Carolina with my best friend who lives over there. And the first moment that I thought something was actually quite significantly wrong was we were actually at Disney World. And it's kind of like the epitome of the problem because, you know, Disney World's catchphrase is the happiest place on earth. Yeah. And I was looking forward to it for ages. And it was one of these things that I had circled on the calendar. And we got to Disney World and it it was kind of fun, but it just was never going to live up to what I wanted it to be. And I remember going back to the hotel room one night and just, I don't know if you'd call it a, a breakdown or what, but I just remember flipping out. I guess it was an anxiety attack. I don't know what I said to Lara, but I just remember thinking, this is hopeless. Like if I can't even be happy at the happiest place on earth, what's the point? Like I've worked hard for two years to save up for this trip. This was going to be one of the best parts of it. And I kind of looked around and kids were crying and adults were screaming at their crying kids and food was expensive and the weather was hot and humid. And it was just not this paradise that I had thought it would be. Mm. And I just flipped out and it was like, I don't think I want to live anymore. And that was the first time I think that I had a suicidal thought. And the first time that I thought something's not right here, because until then 
I had palmed it off as just kind of a rite of passage into adulthood that life's meant to be hard. Mm. And then for the first time, it was like, actually, no, I don't want to live anymore. And that's not okay. So I remember being on the bed of the hotel room and just the thought came into my head. What if I like, what if I jump off the balcony like now? And obviously I didn't act on it, but it was just the most scary thought. And so fast forward, we were meant to be overseas for another seven months. We stayed about another month and came home because we were forking out all this money. It was meant to be this experience of a lifetime and I just wasn't in a good way. So when we got home, I saw a psychologist, I got put on medication and they pretty quickly diagnosed me as having depression. Wow. Yeah. It's a really full on experience. Yeah. Yeah. One of the psychologists, not the first one, but one of the first um, ones I saw said to me, or kind of challenged me and asked, it sounds like you're trying to make happiness the goal of your life. And this was a Christian guy. And he said, maybe the point of your life is maturity. And I knew what he meant at the time, but I kind of clarified. And I guess he was saying that the understanding of our faith, like we have blessings in life, but if we believe that there is a heaven that is perfect, I guess the implication of that is that this life isn't perfect. And constantly seeking after happiness is a recipe to constantly find disappointment. And it's not to say that we can't be happy and there aren't reasons to be happy in life, but if that's like the ultimate goal, then it's pretty dissatisfying. And so as a Christian, that that was probably the start of my journey to think about how my faith informed what I was going through and that maybe life was more than just this pursuit of happiness. Mm, which is really countercultural to modern Western culture, I would think. Totally. And we find it in different ways, like, you know, what we spend our money on, even just the pursuit of money itself, even comfort. Comfort's one that we we love to feel. But I think the problem is when when are we comfortable enough? Like, mm. when are we happy enough? When are we rich enough? And it's it's like, how long is a piece of string? It's this constant desire that never seems to get met. And that's what I was finding with happiness, that I would look for it everywhere. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. Mm. And as a Christian to think that there will come a time when all my desires will be satisfied, changes my whole perspective on life. And we have blessings and we have reasons to find joy and we have reasons to find happiness. But again, it's there has to be more than that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so during this period, were you teaching? Uh, so I was teaching in the two years leading up to America. That's how we saved up. We went overseas for six months. I came back because we were expecting to take a year off. Lara had taken a year of leave. I had to leave my job because I was in a private school and they didn't kind of permit that. But a job actually came up at the school I was at when I came back. So... God really provided for us then. And actually, even better, it was a part-time job. And given the spiral that I'd found myself in, that was really great because, you know, when I pass to people now, I say to them, don't do nothing because doing nothing is sometimes worse because you're just alone with your thoughts all the time. Mm. But don't do too much. And so having a three-day-a-week job teaching was, was a grace of God and it was just what I needed at that time. Yeah, I was teaching before the trip and I was teaching after the trip for a couple of years um, before I ended up going to Bible college. <laughs> and what prompted that? That was part of this journey into wondering what I was going to do with my life. So I enjoyed teaching. 
a lot of people affirmed that I was good at it. I guess I felt, and this was probably the anxiety speaking as well. I felt dread at the prospect of doing it every day for the rest of my life. And mm. I couldn't face that reality. Like I could do it tomorrow. I couldn't do it in 40 years time. So I decided to change paths knowing that I could go back to teaching. And that's something that I'm still open to. And I guess people who go into ministry talk about having this calling to do it. I didn't have like a lightning moment like I did when I was baptized. Like I didn't have a deep spiritual moment like that. But I spoke to Lara a lot and what it came down to was what was I most passionate about. So I'd considered everything. So I'd thought about being a doctor, builder. I love making gelato. Should I be a professional gelato maker? Oh, wow. Like just everything. And looking back, seeing a psychiatrist a few years later, the reason I couldn't find anything that I wanted to do was because my depression was clouding the fact that anything could seem worth doing. So if I thought about being a doctor, rather than thinking about, oh, I can help people, the first thought was, oh, it's really expensive and it's really hard. So therefore I don't want to do it. And a builder, I could really see myself building, but I've heard it kills your body, so I'm not going to do it. And so everything was just like this constant cycle of what am I going to do? And so I ended up deciding to go to Bible college. I went thinking that I would go into school chaplaincy, having been a teacher. And in fact, working for a church was like the bottom of my list when I went to Bible college and here I am working for a church. (laughs) Um, That was my decision-making process. I was passionate about seeing people come to faith the thought of doing that for a living was exciting, but I definitely had a pretty unstable mentality going into it. I had this inner restlessness that I couldn't shake even when I went to college. And so that manifested in a whole bunch of ways. One of the main ones was I've never been diagnosed with being manic and I don't think I am manic, but I think in the anxiety and the uncertainty of what I wanted to do, I studied like crazy. I thought I would never go to uni. Like I said, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And now I'm 31 and this is not a boast, but I think a result of the anxiety is now I have four university degrees. And part of that is like, maybe I don't want to do this. So my solution is I'll go and study and do this. Yeah. And I just wore myself out. So while I was at Bible college, I also studied an MBA, a master's of business. And yeah, it was, um, it was a bit of a crazy time where I didn't show myself a lot of kindness. That's a lot of work. Yeah and not helpful to mental health, I don't think. Yeah. And so you're in Bible college for three years? Yep. And did you have kids during this time as well? Yep. So we had Ella in September of 2011, and I went to Bible college in January of 2012. So she was three months old when I started. And then we had Grace in my second year of college, so in 2013. Uh, And then post-college, we got some surprising news when we found out we were having twins so the result of that is i've now got four kids under the age of five and uh, it's just it's crazy like Mm. like i love it i love all of my kids but to be honest it's not the most conducive thing to mental health like Mm. sleep deprivation lack of downtime it's it's hard and it's um it's complicating at this stage of life given what i've been through yeah for sure And so you graduated. Did you then go and get offered the role at the church? So graduation was a funny time. That's where it all really came to a head in the biggest way for my life to that point. So in my third year of college, again, thinking I'm going back into a school, 
That's what I'd planned for. Um, the minister of the church I'm at now, at the time, he's not here anymore, but he said that they thought there was going to be money for a new position and they wanted to offer it to me. So that was probably like March of my final year of college. But he said, like, you don't have to make a decision until towards the end of the year. So I knew it was there, but I could kind of put it to the side while I finished my study, but it was always looming. And this kind of feeling like, what am I going to do with my life just got worse and worse throughout that final year of college. And so basically by September, I still remember the dates on the 19th of September, 2014 was when I had to make the decision as to whether I was going to take the job. I was like a mess in like the two months leading up because I was on job websites every day going, where's the school job coming? This is what I thought I was be doing and nothing was coming up. Ah. And it was like, I couldn't cope with the fact that maybe God's plans for my life were different from my own. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that idea that, you know, if you're going to be a minister in a church, you've got to really be passionate about it. And I didn't want to go into it being half-hearted, like with some uncertainty about it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is at that time, whatever I was going to do, there was going to be some uncertainty. So 19th of September was looming. I would get home every day from college and just have like this three hour session with Lara going like, what are we going to do? And I had like 20 spreadsheets on my computer desktop of if I do this, this is what it means financially because we've got kids. And it was just this constant cycling through my mind, which I learned later was this thing called rumination where your mind is just always ticking and you think you're strategizing and you think you're finding a solution, but you're just going nowhere. Mm. And that's what it was like. And so when, when I heard this thing, rumination explained, it was like, that's me. And so on the 17th of September, 2014, two days before I had to make the decision, I remember walking around the streets near where I lived and waiting for like God to speak to me and say, this is what you should do. And it was like, God, you really have to come through for me now. And he didn't. And I didn't get any sort of clarity one way or another. And I was seeing a psychologist at the time. I'd started medication and I got home at like four in the morning on a Wednesday morning after walking the streets all night and not sleeping. And I came into Lara. I think I was sobbing and I just said, I need more help. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that the level of intervention that I was getting was not enough at that time. Basically, I was like, I'll do whatever, because <laughs> whatever is going on at the moment isn't working. On the 19th of September, the day that I was meant to make a decision about the job, I got admitted into a psych hospital six weeks before I was meant to graduate from Bible college. Wow. And it was like this crisis point of my life. And on the 26th of September, so it was a three week program, went in on the 19th. On the 26th of September, I was going to be turning 30. So... I got checked into a psych hospital knowing that on my 30th birthday, my two kids and my wife were going to be at home and I was going to wake up in a hospital bed. And it was like the most low point of my life. On the Monday that I got checked in after, so the 22nd of September, we had like this physical training session because they were like, this is part of getting better is your physical health. And I passed out during the workout session. And I don't know if it was just like exhaustion from all that had happened before or whatever, but I remember coming to consciousness on the floor of this psych hospital and that was like the low point. But, you know, I'd been waiting for this light bulb moment in the lead up, but it actually happened in that moment. So we sing a song at church. I don't know if you know it called Desert Song, which is by Hillsong United. 
and there's this bridge in the song and the lyric is all of my life in every season you are still god i have a reason to sing i have a reason to worship and i was unconscious on the floor and as i came to like i, I literally couldn't talk i remember having doctors over me like going what's what's happened and just in my conscious thought these words came into my head and like in every season of my life god is still god and because god is still god i still have a reason to sing and a reason to worship and that was like it was a crisis point but it was also a turning point because i realized that my faith was actually a profound reality in this journey of mental illness mm. and that was a journey that had started when the psychologist told me that perhaps i was pursuing happiness above all else but it really found its most clarity in that moment when i was lying on the floor of a psych hospital about to turn 30 with no idea of what i was going to do with my life so long story short it was a three week program they discharged me after two but on the condition that i would do a three month outpatient program which i did once a week and i graduated I came back to church and I said I understand if you don't want to give me the job anymore but hospital really helped and I've learned some good strategies and I I I can't promise that this will never happen again but I feel better at the moment would you consider still offering me the job and they said yes and great I'm so thankful for that like the ministers who I now work with have been so unconditionally loving and so accommodating of my weaknesses and when i was in hospital a lot of patients causes of angst was their bosses and their workplaces and the fact that they just put all this pressure on them and i was so thankful that i didn't have that and it was a beautiful little moment into what christian community can be that if we really understand the unconditional love that jesus has shown us we have this power to do that for others and i really received that beautifully um So I took the job and I'm still here 2 and a half years later. Wow, amazing. Did you enjoy beginning that work in ministry? I mean, I still wrestle with mental illness, so I don't want to say that I'm cured. Yeah. Um, but it was quite a rapid transformation in terms of my mental health. Um, I got put on a medication that I hadn't been on before and that really hit the spot, and it was just this liberation that I felt that Actually in that moment of brokenness I wasn't I realized that I wasn't defined by my work anymore because for all I knew I couldn't work and realizing that I was still significant and had dignity because of how much God loves me irrespective of what I do for work meant that I could hold on to work a little more lightly and not have to find all my identity in what I did so because I was holding on to it with less of a grip and with less significance over my life of who I was as a person I think since then I've enjoyed it a lot more because I've put it in its place mm. like it's a blessing and God's given me this work to do and it's really significant work that I get to do and I'm super thankful that I feel like he's given me the gifts to do it but even something like formal ministry as a Christian cannot be the sum total of who you are mm. because if I relapse again and I go into hospital again and I can't do this work If this is all that I am, I've got nothing left at that point. But the beauty of who we are in Christ is that we are deeply loved by him and that is a love that transcends ability. And that's really liberating. Beautiful. 
And so you've started a website kind of sharing the same sort of stuff that you're sharing with us now. Can yeah. you talk a bit about that project? Yeah. So the website came out of the book that I've written since that time in hospital. So actually one of the days that I was there about a week after the fainting incident, I remember just started writing down some thoughts and like theological thoughts, like what does this mean for my faith? Um, I can't remember quite where I started, but just starting to ask questions like, is my depression sinful? Like, is this wrong? Is this my fault? Just asking those kinds of questions like, I understand what sin is. I know what it is in relation to God and Satan and evil and all these kind of things. But like, how does that play into my mental illness? Yeah. And I'd seen Christian psychologists before then. They were really faithful people, but they're not theologians in that sense. Like they're psychologists who are Christian. And so most of their insights are psychological. Mm. And so what I wanted to do is just to write down some thoughts for my own healing of how does my understanding of God impact how I think about what's happened to me? Um, and so that began the process of writing. It was only going to be for me at its outset, but then it just turned into something more, um, more interactions with Christian psychologists. Again, really great times together, but I felt like there was something lacking in the reflection of how faith impacted all of this. And so I basically sent this idea for a book that I'd essentially written to a publisher that I really liked. And I'd tried to submit books before, not for this, but other ideas. And I was used to what happened. And I heard about what happened with JK Rowling and Harry Potter that she got you know, like 20 rejection letters before she got the permission to print. And so I wasn't expecting anything, mm -hmm. but I got this email back from their senior editor and it wasn't like, yes, we want to publish it, but it was also wasn't, no, we don't want to. Like I could tell she was curious. And it wasn't like an automated automated email going, we regret to inform you, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of tapped into that a little bit and found out that she has um, lived with depression for about 15 years herself. And so she was really curious by this project. And I got a contract. Like one of the first questions they asked me was, what's your social media presence? Ah. And I was like, well, I've got Facebook. And that was about it. So that was the beginning of building the website, thinking about social media, um, how basically do I get people to hear my message? And at the outset, I really wrestled with that because I felt really egotistical for like having my own website that was my own name and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram accounts and all that, because it's not naturally me to do that. Mm -hmm. But because of the message that I want to share, I've come to really value those things. Like Twitter is amazing. Yeah. Like Twitter, you can get one person with who's got thousands of followers to like your stuff and suddenly you've got thousands of followers and having a book with a message that I really want to share that's that's a real joy and an excitement that having an online presence opens up so I've really been working hard at um yeah the website and the blog and things like that and and again having studied business and not knowing kind of why I was doing it at the time I look back and think oh maybe Maybe that was for a reason. And so the idea of kind of building a brand sounds brutal, but, you know, like kind of marketing yourself. I really enjoyed studying marketing and the psychology behind that. And now the idea that I can market something that I really believe in and this message that I want to share with people, it's really exciting. So that's how the website came about. 
Great. And if people want to visit that site? It's my name, so chrischipolone.com. The spelling of my name is super complicated. Um, C-I-P-O-L-L-O-N-E, chrischipolone.com. And yeah, it's basically a bit about me, a bit about the book. There's a video that I just filmed talking a bit about why I think the book is necessary. Um, I think that one of the things about mental illness is that we feel really unlovable. At least for me, I felt like a real drain to people I loved. I felt like I didn't have much dignity, that I was kind of a waste of space, to be honest. And realizing through scripture the depth of love and dignity that I have in the love that God has shown for me is a game changer. And so we talk about Jesus a lot and... I guess in Christian circles, we talk about forgiveness and like we use big words like justification or whatever. And But whether you're Christian or not, I think at its core, what we learn from Jesus is that God is for us and he's not against us. Like God has given us his only son. He sacrificed his only son for us. And if that's true, we have to conclude that God loves us deeply. And so when we feel unlovable, we're reminded of that truth that God is for us and he's not out to get us. And again, in in a journey of mental illness, I've come to the conclusion that God has not caused the pain that I'm going through. Um, I believe that evil and from a Christian understanding, Satan has caused the pain that I'm going through. Like if sin hadn't entered the world, there would be no depression or anxiety. And so rather than taking that out on God, I take that out on Satan and evil. And I realize that actually through Christ, God is the only one who can deliver me ultimately from this struggle, because I believe that in heaven, that struggle won't be there. So rather than getting angry at God or thinking that he's caused it, it's actually quite the opposite, that God offers me a way out of it. Mm. And that that's become really important to me. So these are the kind of thoughts that I talk about on the blog. I guess it's a bit of a taster for the book. So the book looks at things like, I guess one of the really heavy things is how does a Christian have a hope of heaven without becoming suicidal? So like we believe that heaven is going to be better than this life. We believe it's going to be perfect. How do we not just give up on this life if we know that? And I think a lot of it comes back to that purpose that we have of maturity that that psychologist challenged me. Paul says in Philippians 4, or he actually he says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, I'd prefer to go to be with the Father. Like, I'd prefer to die. He's in jail and he's being persecuted like crazy for his faith. But he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So even though dying is gain, which sounds like a really morbid idea, but if we really believe in eternal paradise, we do have to believe that in death there is gain because we won't feel this suffering. There is still a purpose to live. And to live is Christ. And I think what he means by that is I have been shown such unconditional love that whatever I have left to give, I'll give to him. And I think actually for those of us who wrestle with mental illness, that that's actually a much more acute thing that we can do because our capacity to do these things that we think are like really good Christian behaviors, like you know, the depressive might not want to read their Bible and they might not want to pray and they just they just can't do it. Who am I at that point? Well, living for Christ means that I will still trust that he's loving. And so 
we give what we have. And sometimes what we have isn't as much as what we would like to give, but that's what we've got to give at that moment. And being able to worship God in the midst of mental illness, I think is actually really deeply possible because whatever reserves we have left, we give to him. And I think a lot of what that means is not giving up on his goodness and his promises from scripture. Mm. I'm rambling now, but this is the kind of stuff in the book. Things like, you know, for in Christian community and churches, how can we help each other? What does it mean to be broken? So like I start the book with my experience in hospital Mm. and brokenness is really difficult, but sometimes we learn the most amount of truth in brokenness. So I guess the book is firstly trying to help people of faith who are going through mental illness, particularly depression and anxiety, go through the journey that I went on of working out that actually our faith is deeply significant to this journey. And I guess a secondary audience would be people who are trying to care for those with mental illness, whether they're people of faith or not. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, like there's this famous passage about what love is and his first manifestation of love is patience. Mm. And like he's talking to a church and how do you love one another? And I think actually patience is one of the greatest things we can give to people with depression and anxiety because the reality is it's not a short journey and we want to find quick fixes for things. And depression and anxiety really challenge that because... Like I didn't get cured in hospital. I learned strategies to be able to live with it, but I didn't get cured. Now I believe that, and I say this in the book, that God is big enough to deliver supernatural healing. Like one day my brain may just click over and I have nothing anymore, but I don't think the Bible promises that until I get to heaven, like God can do it. So one of the things I've realized is that God cannot be underestimated. Like it would be a lack of faith to say that God can't do it. Yeah. But he also doesn't promise that he will so that God cannot be underestimated, but he also can't be predicted. Mm. And that's one of the things that I think caring for others, that you may have somebody in your life that you love who will not be fully delivered from this until the day that they die. And that requires patience. And I've learned that when people get impatient with me and go, why can't you just change or Why can't you just be different? That's one of the worst things that you can say to somebody because you're already beating yourself up like crazy. You don't Mm. want it to be the case. You don't want it to be like you're wrestling with it enough in your own head. So what other people see is like the tip of the iceberg. So for someone to say, why can't you just change? It just like exacerbates what's already going on inside you. Like, I don't think anybody takes delight in their depression or anxiety. It's like a burden they don't want to carry. Yeah, that would be a secondary audience, people who just don't know how to respond to people with mental health issues. Mm. And in fact, shameless plug, I wouldn't mind making that a second book, like a book that focuses just on that. So this audience is for people with mental illness. There could be a whole nother book on for people who want to work out how to care for people with mental illness. And that's friends and family. That's church leaders. That's anybody. Yeah, so important. Because for people who can't put themselves in that position who can't relate. Yeah. It can be difficult and can say the wrong thing. Yeah. And people have said to me, and I know they mean well, and it's meant to be validating for the individual. So I get where it's coming from, but Mm. people say, oh, you know, don't feel bad about being on medication or in hospital. Like if somebody broke their leg, they'd go to hospital and we wouldn't think twice. So you being in hospital for depression 
you know, don't think twice about it. I think one of the differences between physical, certain physical illnesses and mental illness is that it's potentially indefinite. So if I break my leg, I'll be able to walk again in eight weeks. If I have a relapse of depression, I don't know when I'm going to come out of that. And so that's where the idea of patience comes in. Yeah. Like, don't assume that the person you love will just snap out of it in eight weeks like they would a broken leg. Mm. Think of it more like, I guess, something like cancer where you have no promise that you'll get better from it. And so telling somebody stop having your cancer, like what that that's like the most unhelpful thing you can say. So, yeah, this idea of patience, I think, is critical that the person is not choosing to be like this. And yeah, believe me, they don't want to be like this. Yeah. And so, again, that unconditional love that I felt from my colleagues was the best thing because they were willing to stand by me no matter how I felt at that time. Awesome. <laughs> Amazing. And so you speak and counsel as well as part of this, yep. I guess, ministry, would you call it a ministry? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, that side of things is just starting up. So I've got a few speaking engagements coming up at a few churches in the process of finalizing the dates for them. I love preaching. Um, my editor, who is a depressive herself, said, I've got this unique combination of having this history of mental illness, but also being a really great communicator. And that's often a rare combination. So I love, it's weird. I love being up the front and preaching, even though I hate building a website that's my own name. I don't know how that works, but the idea of being able to go around to different churches and schools or whoever will have me and allow me to share my story, that's really exciting. And that's actually a real happy place for me. Like people talk about getting into the zone. My zone is preaching where I kind of, I don't lose consciousness, but it just, I really enjoy it. Mm. And the counseling stuff, that's still a work in progress. So again, shameless plug. So I've started an organization called Biblical Counselors Australia. And the name Biblical Counseling is, I think, ambiguous. Like it's, it's a much bigger movement in the United States. In Australia, it's really just beginning. And I think people are still trying to work out actually what is biblical counseling and what's how is it different from psychology or, um, I guess, normal counselling? The idea for BCA, Biblical Counselling Australia, in its form, what it looks like at the moment is that it will be a team of three of us. I'll be directing it. And there will be a Christian trained psychologist who is a Christian, a Christian clinical social worker, and then me as a pastor theologian. And so... What we want to offer is something holistic that perhaps hasn't been offered before. I don't believe that the Bible is the only source of wisdom when it comes to psychology. Like I know some people think that we shouldn't refer to secular psychology. If you like, I don't believe that. Like I think that God works through all people, whether they're Christians or not, and that we have a lot to learn from psychology. At the end of the day, as Christians, though, if there is an area of psychology that is really contradictory to the Bible then we kind of have to let the Bible speak for itself at that point. So Larry Crabb is an American psychologist who wrote a book called Effective Biblical Counseling. And that's really where the model of this comes out, that we're not going to, we're not just going to write psychology off or social work off. Like we're going to employ psychologists and social workers because we believe that they are things that have a lot to offer. But we're also going to go a step further than that and offer something more holistic and bring in me, I guess, as a theologian and a pastor 
to offer spiritual reflections on what's happening. So the hope of it is that, and it, you don't have to be Christian to come along, but we'll speak from a Christian perspective, that you can get really holistic treatment to help you process what it is exactly that you're going through from a psychological perspective, from a social work perspective, and from a theological perspective. And we're not out to compete with one another. We think that we all have something to offer in this picture, and it's a really beautiful holistic model that we think we've got. So part of the speaking will be, I guess, promoting biblical counsellors. And we're really excited by the opportunity. So the two other people that I'm working with are really passionate about it. They've been wanting to do something like this for a while. And to be honest, I think it's a it's a ministry and a service that is kind of lacking in Australia. And that really excites me. So we're available. Well, not if you see me, because I'm not, I can't be Medicare rebated because I'm not a psychologist. But for our psychologist and a social worker, you can go through Medicare in the way that you would a normal psychologist or social worker. So we've tried to make it really affordable so that money is not an issue. And yeah, come along and we'll do our best to help you. And if we can't, we've got a network of other specialists who we can refer you to. So I'm really excited by it. And again, I I don't think God has caused what I've been through, but I think he's really using it for his glory Mm -hmm. through the speaking and the counseling and the book. And it's kind of ironic that my whole angst was, what am I going to do with my life? And that in that angst, I've kind of found what it is that I am meant to be doing. Yeah. So it's kind of this ironic full circle, I guess, that God has just answered me in ways that I would have never expected. Wow. Great. Yeah. And so I love that advice you had there for people who are walking alongside people who are suffering mental illness to the people themselves who are suffering. I mean, you've said so much already, (laughs) but is there a core thing that you would want to say to them? Yeah, I think whatever thoughts and feelings that you have internally, they are not necessarily true. So, for example, when we suffer from depression, one of the, I guess, manifestations of that. So psychologists talk about thoughts and feelings. A thought with that might be God doesn't love me. And a feeling that comes out of that is hopelessness. And I think as Christians, you know, when we talk about, you know, really knowing our Bibles well or read your Bible and all this stuff, actually, I think in these moments, that's when knowing our Bibles becomes really important because if we let our thoughts and our feelings dictate what is truth, that can be really deceptive because as the name would suggest, mental illness is an illness of the mind. Like there is a, there is a deceptiveness to it that we may not actually be seeing things for the way that they are. Mm. And scripture becomes really important at that point because they show us what truth is. So for example, that idea that God loves me unconditionally, can I really believe that? And so for Christians who are going through it at the moment, don't beat yourself up for your thoughts or your feelings, like don't let it make you feel worse, but be willing to challenge those thoughts and feelings. and assess them in light of what you know about God and let what you know, if it's in conflict with what you feel, let what you know win that fight because how you feel needs to be addressed and shouldn't be undermined, but you also shouldn't assume that it's true. And that would be my advice. And it's, it's been a helpful reminder to me the last couple of weeks, psychologists talk about lapse and relapse, like a relapse is a full on like return to hospital lapse is like 
you're starting to show signs of going that way again. So the last couple of weeks, I would say I've lapsed and I've found life really hard. And that that's how I, I guess, counsel myself that I'm not going to beat myself up for feeling depressed, but I'm also going to challenge it. And I'm going to rest in the truths that I know about God, even if I don't feel them because feelings and, and psychologists who are not people of faith have come to realize this, that like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the mainstreams of psychology encourages to encourages us to challenge our feelings and assess them in light of, well, are they actually true? Um, so that would be my advice. Um, be kind to yourself in your thoughts and feelings but also be willing to challenge them if, if you at all can, because God's love, God will love us whether we feel like he does or not. Yeah. And yeah. So we're kind of not the masters of that domain. Mm. Wow. So good. So I'm wondering as well, if you can share a bit about the process of writing this book. Yeah. I've kind of gone around the process the wrong way because I'm a rookie at it. So I'd actually written the whole book before I sent it to the publisher or the idea. And they told me, actually, we don't like it when people write a whole book. Mm. We like it when they come to us with an idea and then we can help them shape that idea if we like it. So the process has been a little bit unconventional. Um, but my favorite movie ever is a movie called Finding Forrester. And it's a movie, Sean Connery is one of the characters. And he's this famous but reclusive author and he's mentoring this young kid from New York City. And he says, the first draft is with your heart and the second draft is with your head. Mm-hmm. In other words, just spit out whatever you want and just write and don't think about it. So when I took the idea to the publisher, that's what I'd done. There was no filtering. There was no editing of grammar, even editing of like concepts of what I was talking about. It was just like, write what's on your heart. So that has been in existence for probably almost a year now, that finished heartfelt first draft. Since then, and getting the book contract, it's about now refining and writing with my head. And not just, it's, it's interesting that I feel this pressure that I don't want to say anything that is destructive to people who are going through depression and anxiety. And I know that I'm not a psychologist. I don't pretend to be. So it's been helpful that I've, I've got a few friends who are psychologists to read the manuscript. Plus, I just don't want to make an idiot of myself. And to say something, psychologists are like, no, that's opposite to everything that we know about the way that the human mind works. <laughs> sure. So it's been nice that in my, my friends who are psychologists who've read it, haven't found anything glaring like that. So that's been nice. And again, um, thinking about counseling for myself that... I wouldn't say anything that's like horribly destructive. So the process since then has been sending chapters at a time to the editor, taking it slow because I'm a first time author. They like to invest a lot of time. Like the publisher has just published um, John Piper, who's a famous author. And they said for him, they just, he took them the idea. They said, yep, write it and give it to us when it's finished. Cause they know he can write and he knows what the process is. Whereas for me, it's much more guided. And it's much more, okay, here's what you need to do next. Here's what we want from the next chapter, all those kind of things. So at the moment, it's a lot of back and forth between the editor and I. It's pretty cool. Like I love technology in the sense that my editor is in the UK. I'm in Sydney. We can mm-hmm. Skype, we can email. It's it's great. So you've never met your editor? Not in person, no. Wow. So 
it's interesting. I find it interesting when you meet someone over Skype for the first time. Uh, but because my good friend is in the United States, I'm used to doing Skype. Mm-hmm. But it is daunting. And actually, the first Skype conversation with her was an absolute disaster because I was home by myself without my wife and my second child had like this vomiting bug. So she oh. <laughs> she basically came in and vomited on me while I was <laughs> having this Skype <laughs> conversation with an editor. It was so embarrassing, but it was one of those moments that it was kind of a good story to tell and the editor loved it. And it was kind of, you know, what can you do at that moment? So um, that's the process from here. It's the book's due to be out in the second half of 2017. So I need to have the final manuscript done by April next year, 2017. And then it's like four to six months for it to do all the design and the printing and the distribution. So the book is going to go out to the UK, the US, Australia and New Zealand initially. And then if other people like it, they'll pick it up. And yeah, I'd love to do some speaking with that. Church has given me their blessing to be able to do that should the time come. So I'm speaking to some pastors in the UK, I'm building up some networks in the US. So uh, along with the book will hopefully be um, quite a quite a good speaking ministry that will go with that. So that's where I'm at at the moment in terms of the process. Wow. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so throughout your life, has there been for you a key scripture or even biblical figure that has been really significant? Yeah, it's funny. I remember growing up with Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Um, so trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And I think about that and I reflect, maybe I was always anxious. Like, why did that verse stick out to me from a young age? Like when I was 10, this idea that God will make our paths straight. Like I'm not in control of my future and I can trust in him with all of my heart. I don't have to lean on my own understanding. I can trust that God will pave that way for me. And that doesn't mean that I sit back and do nothing. But when I feel this tension, like I don't know where I'm going, I can find rest because it's again, it's this idea holding on to the promises of God. And that's a promise in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. So that's been really profound for me. And then I guess translating that in terms of my identity of who I am in Christ. And I start the book with this one, John three, one. So John says, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And again, there's a promise there. It's not, that's what we might be if we feel like it. It's like, that's what we are. We're children of God. The father has lavished his love on us. And we know he has because he sacrificed his own son for us. Like he hasn't spared anything in pursuit of us and in love of us. And I hold on to that verse all the time. And if anyone's listening, who is going through depression and anxiety, who just feels deeply unlovable, that verse promises us that God's love is very, very deep, far deeper than what we know. And that's a promise that is not dependent on our feelings. Awesome. And so in terms of your faith overall, I'm wondering if you can sum up for us kind of the core of of what you believe. Yeah, I think it comes back to, I mean, I believe that Jesus is central to the whole narrative of history. Like we have this perfect creation and it gets broken by sin. And the only way out of that sin, the remedy for that is Christ. Mm. 
in living that sinless life, he can be our sacrifice. He can be our representative before God. And in that, that perfect creation that was once there will be restored as a new creation. So Christ is that center point because he provides us the ability to be restored to a reality that we were always meant to be in. And again, going through mental illness, that's incredibly comforting. So the core of what I believe is that irrespective of what I do or what I think or how I fall short, I'm not condemned for it because of what Christ has done. And not just in that death, you know, we talk a lot about Jesus' death, but let's not forget the resurrection. I mean, if he just died, that what hope do I have? But this man who might be more than a man and that can rise from the dead, and that could actually be possible and promises that I too will rise from the dead. Just saying that sounds like a ludicrous idea in itself. But for me, seeing the historical reliability of Christ on earth and and accounts of his resurrection are incredibly comforting for me that this is not like an empty faith that I have this hope that I'm just going to be proven to be crazy. Um, Paul says, we of all people, you should pity us if we're wrong. You should pity us because we live this life that is tries to be sacrificial in light of the sacrifice that Christ has shown us. And if that sacrifice is for nothing, then what's the point? But I wouldn't be here writing this book or being a minister of a church if I thought it was all a fraud. Mm. Um, if you don't believe it, yeah, pity me because <laughs> I'm living this life that is not conventional. But what if it was true? And eternal life is a game changer. If there was nothing beyond this, I don't think life would be worth living because it's so broken and it's so dissatisfying in so many ways. Like, again, we've got blessings from God that we we need to remember to be thankful for. Like my family are a blessing. I have a home. I have friends. There's the sun that shines on me every day. There is goodness in life. But I believe in all of us, there is this yearning that there must be something more. And we can find that in a whole host of ways. We can anesthetize ourselves with that, with possessions or career or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, we all have this desire to fill this void with something. And I believe that finding who we are in Christ and in that, that that void will be filled for all eternity in heaven. That's where I want to fill that void. And that's what I believe. And, and again, in Christ, we see that God, God is for us and that changes everything. Amazing. And then what are your hopes and dreams for the future? What, what are you hoping life looks like? I guess in light of what the psychologist said to me, I hope that I increase in my maturity in Christ. I hope that through my experience, and I'm not, I'm not defined by my depression, but it's certainly a significant part of my life. Um, I really hope that I don't relapse. If I do, I'll deal with that at the, when it happens. Um, and I guess in terms of a ministry and a career, I would really love to just share this story with as many people as I can. Uh, a book excites me because it's like a sermon, but you preach a sermon to 500 people. A book can get into the hands of countless people and that excites me. And so practically speaking, I would love to do a lot of speaking stuff. I'd love to do counseling. I still haven't given up on the idea of going back into a school. So I guess rather than being filled with dread at the uncertainty, as I reflect, one of the changes that's happened in my own psyche 
is that I'm filled with optimism again. But it's a different kind of optimism. It, I can put it in check in a way that I couldn't before that it's an optimism that, hey, maybe this will happen, but if it doesn't, it's not going to destroy me. Mm. And that's that's different because before it was an optimism and if it didn't happen, life wasn't worth living anymore. And that's been something that I've learned that you can be optimistic and you can have hopes and dreams, but it's okay if they don't come to fruition. Yeah. So my hopes at this point are to share this story with as many people as I can, to see my kids grow up in faith. That's really all I want for them. I don't really care what they do for work. If I believe that eternity is real, my greatest prayer for them is that they would find that faith for themselves and that they would come to see that God's love for them in Christ is real. I really don't want anything more for them than that. Um, That's what I hope and dream. And don't forget that if this has brought up any issues or difficulties for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.